Okay. Well, it's, um, it's brilliant to have um, Adrian with us this morning. Adrian's been, um, been with us um, a number of times before, so it's fantastic to have him back here. Adrian is uh, based in southwest London, but uh, travels um, extensively across, uh, across the country, uh, communicating the gospel and equipping um, Christians so that we can uh, speak Jesus clearly. Um, to those around us. So it's really exciting to have Adrian with us. It must be going to your busy season. You do many carol services, don't you, between, well, leading up to Christmas is traditional time for it. So um, uh, pray for Adrian as he goes into particularly into many um, universities and Christian unions. He has a a great opportunity to speak to many um, people um, throughout the year, but especially leading up in the run-up to Christmas. Um, And we're we're really thankful to have Adrian with us. Why don't we welcome him? Thank you very much. Great. Thank you. Let me just, let me just pray for you. Cool. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness here, uh, and we thank you that Adrian is here to proclaim your, your goodness and your truth, and we pray your blessing upon him, and we pray for us, that we would hear his words and put them into action, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, thank you, John. Thank you so much. And uh, it's, it's great to be back uh, with you. Uh, very much enjoyed being here last year. For those of you who I don't know, I thought maybe I'd just introduce myself now, if I may, just by showing you 60 seconds of photos from my life. Would that be okay? So this is just a bit of fun. Is that all right? Okay, so first photograph then, ladies and gentlemen, me as a baby. You can see here, folks, that I was actually born with a receding hairline. (laughs) And uh, if you look very carefully, you'll see that I was also born with a squint, which means that wherever you are seated in this room, at least one of my eyes is looking at you. (laughs) Okay, next photo, me, age seven. Thank you for that, R. Uh, Now, as you can see, I've really got a number of problems here. In fact, we could spend the whole morning going through these problems one by one. Let's just choose one of my problems. You can see what's happened here. This is the 1970s. What's happened here is that my mum has got out the old kitchen scissors. And she's tried to cut my fringe straight, but she's gone ever so slightly uphill. Can you see that? Yes. Um, Okay, next photograph. Me in a band. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. When I was a student, I too was in a band. And you can see Jim standing on one side of me. Jim has a bit of a pout. Can you see his lips pouting? Yes, you can see that? That's because Jim has been in a band before. Uh, Roddy and me, however, we haven't been in a band before, so we're just trying to look cool, you know, like you do. Next photograph, me on my stag day. So uh, just to explain, if you're not uh, from this country, here in Britain, if you're a man and you want to get married, you first have to dress up as an ostrich jockey. (laughs) And now I am married to my wonderful wife, Julia, and we've got these four lovely daughters. So now I'm 49 years into my journey through life. And probably all of us would agree that during the course of a typical 70, 80, 90-year life, usually there comes a point, a moment. Now, granted, this moment may only last for five minutes, but at least for those five minutes, we ask this question, am I alive for a reason? I can see, talk, think, feel, I can have fun, 
But is there any purpose to life? For at least those five minutes, we ask, why am I here? I mean, for that matter, why is anything here? I mean, how come there is something rather than nothing? Why did anything begin to exist? Why is there a universe with me living in it? I mean, why is there a planet Earth with me living on it? You know, I showed you a few photos from my life. Well, you could take your phone right now, and you could show me a few photos from your life. But once we've added those photographs together, does it mean anything? I mean, do our lives amount to anything in the greater scheme of things, or are we really just meaningless bags of chemicals? Is life ultimately pointless? And during those five minutes, when we're thinking about this huge question, along comes a 33-year-old man. Now, he is by far the most famous person who's ever lived, Jesus of Nazareth. And he looks you and me straight in the eyes this morning and says, you're not an accident. You're supposed to be here. You're worth something. Now, Jesus says there really is a loving God, a loving God who always planned that one day you would exist. And now this loving God has brought you into existence deliberately on purpose in the hope of having the most wonderful relationship with you. This is a relationship that is so good, it actually goes on into the next life, into a place where we'll never be bored. This is a place where every day will be better than the one before. This is a place where we will be filled and thrilled to the max. So Jesus says you are that loved by God. Now that is quite a claim. But how do people respond to it? For example, what happened to me? Well, I didn't go to church. I didn't have any friends who went to church. But then I got invited along to a church like this church, and I had lots of questions. One of those questions was, well, hang on a minute. Hasn't science buried God? And this morning, I'd like to explore this question in terms of the journey that I went on, in terms of some of the questions that I asked along the way. This book that I'm holding now is the personal story of a geneticist called Francis Collins. It's a story of how halfway through his academic career, he converted from atheism to Christianity. And after becoming a Christian, Francis Collins was appointed director of the Human Genome Project. And then in April 2003, he announced to the world that he had successfully mapped the entire human genome. This is one of the most amazing scientific discoveries of all time. Has science buried God? Well, clearly not in the opinion of leading scientists like Francis Collins who believe in God. I mean, these guys, they see no trade-off between believing in God and doing science for a living. Or how about my friend Keith Fox? Keith is professor of biochemistry at Southampton University. He's one of the UK's leading biologists. So Keith is part of a church which is like this church. I preached at his church. At his church, Professor Keith Fox runs a group called Reasonable Faith. Or how about Christine Dunn? Christine is a convert from atheism to Christianity. Chris is professor of physics at Durham University. She's married to one of the elders at Emmanuel Church Durham, which is a church that's actually linked to this church. 
So Christine is professor of physics at Durham and leads the Alpha course at her church. Now, there's a long list of people like this. These are outstanding scientists who are also keen Christians. They would all say that juxtaposing science and God as opposites is a category mistake. Now, what do they mean when they say it's a, a category mistake? Well, let's imagine for a moment that I decide to make a cup of tea. Now, let's imagine that while the kettle is boiling, scientists Kelvin and Joule discover the precise mechanism whereby the heat is turned into boiling water. So we now know how the water boils. We have discovered the mechanism. But it would be a mistake to say that because we've discovered the mechanism, I don't exist. It would be a mistake to say that because you could still quite accurately say the reason why the kettle boiled is because I wanted to make a cup of tea. To say, we've discovered the mechanism, therefore Adrian Holloway doesn't exist, I mean, that would be a category mistake. So we don't need an adversarial either-or explanation. And actually, it seems that most people in Britain agree with this. A European Commission poll found that 78% of people in the UK believe in God and or the supernatural. So these are the very same British adults who've got more scientific knowledge than any preceding generation. So it seems that even in this modern technological age, actually most British people don't see science and God as enemies. They don't see it as an either-or. Most British people actually do see science and God as a both-and. Okay, so having heard this kind of reply, I then said, okay, 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 maybe you're right, maybe science hasn't buried God, but hey, I said, come on, as we discover more and more through science, the Bible's version of events does look increasingly unlikely, yes? Well... That is certainly not the case when it comes to the origin of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, and the origin of organic life. Let me see if I can explain what I mean. Firstly, then, regarding the origin of the universe. Up until the late 1920s, atheists used to argue that the universe was eternal. Just accept it, they said. It's always been there. And they used to argue in that way because, at that time, the universe was thought to be locked in a static, steady state. But then, an American astronomer called Edwin Hubble took a series of photographs in 1929 which proved that the universe is not locked in a static, steady state. Hubble saw that the other galaxies are moving away from us and they're also moving away from each other. Now, the easiest way for us to visualize what Edwin Hubble saw from his telescope in California is to use a balloon. So, just imagine with me for a moment that these stars on my daughter's balloon are actually galaxies. What Hubble saw was that the galaxies are moving away from each other and they're moving away from us. In fact, wherever we look in the universe, this 
expansion is taking place. So cosmologists concluded that seeing as the universe is expanding, at some point in the past they concluded the universe must have been much smaller than it is today. In fact, they concluded that at one time the universe must have had a beginning. Then, in 1965, astronomers Robert Wilson and Arno Penzias discovered some background radiation in the universe that had been left behind by this beginning moment. This radiation is, if you like, a signature left behind by this beginning moment. So today, there is an overwhelming scientific consensus that at one time, the universe actually did have a beginning. Now, this was a huge blow to atheists because they could no longer argue that the universe had always been there. This, incidentally, is a very good example of how a scientific discovery has actually made it easier to believe in God. Because this beginning moment does look like Genesis 1, verse 3, where God said, let there be light, and there was light. Let me put the same thing to you a different way. Imagine if I said to you that 13.7 billion years ago, there was absolutely nothing. Then, a fraction of a second later, there was a huge purple carrot the size of pool. Now, I put it to you that the sudden arrival of the huge carrot would demand some sort of explanation. You see, it is not that matter and energy expanded into an already existing space-time universe. No. Space and time themselves began to exist at this beginning moment. We now know that the universe came into existence suddenly out of nothing. Space, time, matter, and energy all began to exist at that beginning moment. So this discovery supports the second step of a simple case for the existence of God. Step one says that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Now, this sounds reasonable. At least we don't know of any exceptions to step one. Step two says that the universe began to exist. As we have just seen, actually, this is the reigning scientific orthodoxy today. This is the standard model. So the conclusion necessarily follows the universe has a cause. Something or someone that exists outside of time and space caused the space-time universe to come into existence. Maybe I can finish this first point just by telling you a funny story. This is a funny story told to me and my wife by a friend of ours called Angela. Angela lives in a, a village where my wife's parents live. This is a, a rural village um, where there is only one bus a day. And Angela, our friend, is waiting at the bus stop for the daily bus. But it's a cold, snowy day, and the bus doesn't come. There's a couple of other ladies that are also waiting for the bus. And Angela is thinking, well, there is ice on the road. Maybe the bus has been cancelled. And she's about to give up and go home. At that moment, when she's about to give up, a car pulls up at the bus stop. There's a woman driving this car. This woman winds down her window, and she calls out, Do you want a lift? 
And she thinks, oh, yeah, <laughs> I'm cold. Oh, you know, I really do want to lift. So she gets into the car. Actually, the other two women at the bus stop, they get into the car as well. Okay? So now picture the scene. This woman drives off from the bus stop, and on the back seat, she's got these three women. She's got Angela. Angela's in the middle. There's a lady that Angela doesn't know on her right-hand side. There's another lady that Angela doesn't know on her left-hand side. But Angela says the funny thing was, as they're driving along, no one said anything. Silence. No, no conversation in the car. They drive along the four, those four women drive along for five minutes. Still, no one has said anything. Five minutes further on down the road, they've now been driving along the four of them for ten minutes. Still, no one has said anything. And then, the lady on Angela's right-hand side, she starts talking to the driver. It's obvious, these two women, they already know each other. And then as soon as they start talking to each other, the lady on Angela's left-hand side, she joins in the conversation. It's obvious, she also knows the driver, and she knows the lady on Angela's right. And that's when the horrible, dawning realization comes to Angela. But what must have happened here was that this woman was driving her car along the road on a snowy day, and as she passes the bus stop, she sees two of her friends. And so she stops, and she winds down her window, and she calls out to her two friends, do you want a lift? And as her two friends get into her car, this random <laughs> other person gets in as well. But you see, because they were British, and because they hadn't been introduced, nobody said anything. They just drove along in total silence. And, oh, it's very awkward. We haven't been introduced. There's a random person in the car. Uh, uh, what, what, what do we do? Yeah. Folks, that was an awkward moment. But at no time did any of those women in the car think that Angela had come into existence for absolutely no reason at all. None of them thought that Angela had just happened. Why? Because everyone in the world bases their life on the law of cause and effect. So to get a universe out of nothing, you need a cause. And a cause that is capable of bringing space, time, matter, and energy into existence well, you could call that first cause God. So, I look to the origin of the universe. Next, the fine-tuning of the universe. Now, we know that if the Earth was 5% closer to the sun, we would fry. We know that if we were 5% further away, we would freeze. We know that... It just so happens that our solar system is in what astronomers call the Goldilocks zone of the Milky Way. This is in between the Sagittarius and Perseus spiral arms. Uh, maybe you can see the little yellow letters there where our sun is. So that's a rare, safe place in the Milky Way. Also, of course, where you are. But the degree of fine-tuning that we are talking about, when we are talking about the earliest seconds of the universe's existence, is far more impressive than any of that. Because way back at the beginning moment, there is an explosion which causes matter to fly outwards, but the matter flies outwards at a perfectly controlled speed. Too fast an expansion, nothing will ever settle down, there won't ever be a universe, but alternatively, 
a fractionally slower expansion, and the universe never gets going in the first place. So the universe expands, but the speed of expansion turns out to be critical. Too slow an expansion, and ah, the universe collapses back on itself. Folks, if the rate of expansion in the earliest seconds of the universe's existence had been smaller, if the rate had been smaller by even one part in a hundred million, billion, 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 the universe would have recollapsed before it ever reached its present size. So the speed of expansion is crucial, and the speed of expansion is controlled by something called the cosmological constant. And that is the energy density of empty space. Therefore, the cosmological constant cannot be just any old number. No. In order for life to exist, the value of the cosmological constant has to be fine-tuned to a very precise number. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. But folks, it's not just the cosmological constant, which is four up from the bottom of this table. Turns out there are 20 of these values, 20 numbers, all of which have to be just so. Otherwise, no humans, no people would ever have existed. Even the tiniest variation, either here or there, makes all the difference. Maybe I can just give you a funny illustration of this point. Um, now, for this uh, illustration to work, I wonder if you could just do me a favor. I'm going to ask you for a show of hands. Is that okay? I'm going to ask you to vote on something. Could you please help me out? Could you please raise your hand if you think that I have got a criminal record? Would you just please raise your hands? Oh, okay. <laughs> this couple down the front straight away. Back row, absolutely convinced. A couple of others over here. Okay, th thanks very much. Hands down. Now, could you please raise your hands if you think that I've not got a criminal record? Oh, okay, slightly more. Well, the majority. Well, the truth, the, the, the truth is, folks, that I have. I have got a criminal record. Some people seem to be pleased about that, yeah. Um, so I have got a criminal record. Uh, yeah, so the, the truth is, um, ladies and gentlemen, that on the 14th of November, 1988, I was arrested for alarm, distress, and willful obstruction of a highway. Yeah, I can see some of you are interested. I mean, I will happily tell you about my crime, but can I just say what was really quite exciting was the manner of my arrest, the way, the way in which I was arrested. Because I was arrested running away from the scene of my crime. I was on foot. I was being chased by a police car. Sirens blaring, lights flashing. So I'm running as fast as I can. I run across these two roads, and then I can see there's this muddy field. So I jump over the fence, because the car can't go through the fence. So I jump over the fence. The police car screeches to a halt. The two coppers fly out the car. They jump over the fence. So now I'm running as fast as I can uphill through this muddy field. The policemen are getting closer and closer. I'm in a police chase. So I'm running as fast as I can. They're running as fast as I can. I'm running as fast as I can. And eventually I can hear the quicker of these two coppers is getting closer and closer and closer. And then eventually he does this excellent rugby tackle. Bang. And I go face down in the mud. I'm lying there in the mud thinking to myself, that was cool. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, how cool was that? One minute, full speed, the next, bang, face down in the mud. So I'm lying there in the mud. And of course, I'm thinking through all these cop TV shows that I've watched, you know, all through my growing up. And as you know, what happens next on telly is that the policeman says, you're Nick, Sonny Jim. Do you know? He actually said that. 
I was so delighted. So I stood up and said, look, officer, I've really got to thank you. It was really quite exciting. You know, the chase, the lights, the sirens. You know, I'm from Wimbledon. This is really quite, quite exciting. And then, as you know, what happens on TV is that the policeman, he puts your arm up your back. He did that as well, like this, all this business. And then, as you know, what happens on telly is that when they put the arrested person in the car, um, the police car, one of the policemen puts their hand on your head and they push you down as if you've never got into the back seat of a car ever before. And so he pushes you down. So he did that as well. So I go down the station, I empty out my pockets and I'm arrested. Now it might be that there's one or two of you and you're curious to know, what was the alarm? What was the distress? What was the willful obstruction of a highway? Well, I have to confess to you that I was a student at the time. And what had happened was that I, I was just going back to this college where I lived at the time, and as I went back to my college, I, I discovered there were 20 of my friends, and they got hold of quite a large felled tree, and they were moving this tree to block the entrance to a rival, and in our opinion, inferior college. So I thought that at that time, this other college was of no public benefit to anyone anyway, so I thought it was a good thing to block access, so I joined in, thinking that it was the right thing to do. So I joined in, blocked the, blocked, we put the tree there, but of course, what happened next was when the flashing blue lights appear in the distance, all my mates scarper. And I remember thinking, no, you don't need to run away. You don't need to run away. We're students. This is obviously a student prank. The police are reasonable people. I'm from Wimbledon. I'll be able to reason with these people. But no, when the police car got really close, I thought, no, probably this is wrong. Probably this will turn out to be alarm, distress, and willful obstruction of a highway. And so because I was the last to leave the scene of my crime, I was also the easiest to catch. Folks, if I had run away two seconds earlier when all my mates scarpered, I would never have been arrested. But I didn't. I stayed for two seconds, and that's why I was arrested. That's the difference between me not being arrested and me being arrested. Two seconds. What we are talking about right now is the difference between our universe existing and nothing existing coming down to a far smaller variable than two seconds. Roger Penrose, who developed our current understanding of black holes, he worked out the odds, the chances of us having exactly the right amount of order or entropy at the start of the universe. Entropy subsequently breaks down and decays. But we need to have exactly the right amount of order at the start. What's the chances of us having exactly the right amount of order? The chance is one chance in 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a number that has more zeros on the end of it than the total number of particles in the entire universe. But entropy is just one, just one of our 20 factors. All 20 have to be just so in order for us to be here. So question, why is our universe so unlikely? Answer, because of the number of competing forces that have to be perfectly balanced in the earliest seconds of the universe's existence. So it turns out that gravity and electromagnetism have to just exist, but not just exist. They have to be perfectly calibrated to each other. The same is true of matter and antimatter. The same is true of neutrons and electrons. The same is true of the strong and the weak nuclear force. And so the list goes on. Any messing with any of the numbers in the column that says 
value in our universe and we wouldn't be here. There'd either be no universe or there'd be no life. Let's take gravity, for example. Imagine with me for a moment that this tape measure was enormously long, so long that it stretched from one side of the universe over here all the way over to the opposite side of the universe over here. Now, if it did, it would accurately represent the possible force strengths that gravity could have had. Now, let's imagine that the strength of gravity or the force of gravity is actually set here on planet Earth. Now, let's imagine that I want to increase the strength of gravity. Let's say I just want to do it by two and a half centimeters, a tiny amount on this vast scale. Let's imagine I want to increase gravity from here to here. Folks, scientists have discovered that this tiny increase from here to here would actually increase the strength of gravity on Earth a billion-fold. It would have meant that there would never have been any life on Earth. This tiny increase from here to here would have meant that planet Earth would have had a maximum diameter of just 12 meters. In other words, planet Earth would never have been any bigger than this room. That's just what we need for gravity, but all the numbers on our table have to be just so. Scientists have discovered, studying two of our list of 20, that they are fine-tuned to each other to a precision of 1 in 10 to the power 40. Now, how could we visualize a 1 in 10 to the power 40 chance? What does that look like? Well, conveniently for us, Dr. Hugh Ross of Toronto University, uh, an astronomer, has a famous illustration of the 1 in 10 to the power 40 chance. I think you'll enjoy this one. So he says, okay, um, cover a, a continent the size of North America with small coins, he says. And then pile your coins up so high that they reach 236,000 miles, in other words, the distance from here to the moon. Pile your coins up. Then he says, take an additional 1 billion other continents that are also the size of North America and cover those with small coins as well and pile all your coins up again 236,000 miles into the sky. Okay. Now, he says, take an additional one coin, but this time, paint your one coin red. And then hide your one red coin somewhere in one of the one billion piles the size of North America that reach 236,000 miles into the sky. Okay, once you've done that, next step, find a member of the public and invite them, ask them, would you like to participate in a scientific experiment? If they say yes, you then blindfold this person, and then you say to them, pick a coin, any coin. The chance that this person will pick out the one red coin first time is a 1 in 10 to the power 40 chance. Folks, that's what we need for just two of these to be fine-tuned to each other. But in order for you and me to be here in this room to talk about it, all 20 have to be fine-tuned to each other. Ladies and gentlemen, I reached a point where I realized that in any other area of my life, I would never accept sheer luck or chance as the best explanation for the facts that are in front of us. Thirdly, the origin of organic life. Maybe I could begin this Third point, 
just by telling you a, a, a funny story about something that happened to me once when I was watching football on TV, um, watching the World Cup, actually. Now, what I'm about to say will, quite honestly, for those of you much younger than me here today, will be quite hard for you to imagine. But I'd like you to know that when I was growing up here in this country, every four years when the Football World Cup came around, people in this country genuinely thought that England would win the World Cup. I mean, it's hard to imagine now, I know. I mean, deep down in our hearts, we all knew, really, we knew that England wouldn't win the World Cup. We all knew that we would be knocked out on penalties. But the truth is that in the year 1990, oh, what a year that was, the Italia 90 World Cup, when we were watching the World Cup quarterfinals, it's England versus Belgium, so we're all packed into the bar, we're all watching the game on the big screen, we're all crammed in, and it gets to the final minute of the game, England versus Belgium, the scores are nil-nil, and as in the final minute of the game, as David Platt swiveled to volley the ball into the net for the winning goal at that moment, as the ball crossed the line, as the ball hit the back of the net, at that moment, I kissed people who I'd never met. What a moment that was to be alive. There is something about life that is exciting. And if each of us now were able to see our unique DNA sequence, we would be blown away by the complexity of the information which is carried in each and every one of our cells. And with the benefit of computer animation, we can actually view this remarkable system at work. So what we're going to do here is we're going to enter into the heart of a cell. And when we do, we can see inside the tightly wound strands of DNA. Can you see them there? These are storehouses which contain the instructions that are needed to build every single protein in an organism. Then, in a process known as transcription, a molecular machine first unwinds the DNA helix to expose the genetic instructions that are needed in order to assemble a specific protein molecule. What happens next is that another molecular machine then copies these instructions to form a molecule known as messenger RNA. And when this transcription is complete, this slender RNA strand carries the genetic information through the nuclear pore complex. You see it knocking on the door? This is the, this is the gatekeeper for traffic in and out of the cell nucleus. The messenger RNA strand, once it's outside, is directed to a two-part molecular factory called a ribosome. And there... After attaching itself securely, this extraordinary process of translation begins. You see, inside the ribosome, a molecular assembly line builds a specifically sequenced chain of amino acids. These amino acids, arriving at the bottom of the screen, they're being transported from other parts of the cell, and then they're linked into chains that are often hundreds of units long. It's their sequential arrangement that determines the type of protein that is being manufactured. And remember, all of this is determined by your unique genetic DNA code, which 
is embedded in that double helical structure that we saw at the beginning of our video. So when this chain is finished, it's moved from the ribosome into this barrel-shaped machine. There, it's folded inside the machine into the precise chain shape which is going to be needed, critical to its function. And it is amazing to think that exactly this process is happening inside your body right now on a microscopic scale as you are watching it on large scale, projected, animated, on the big screen. After the chain is folded into a protein, it's then released and shepherded by another molecular machine. Here it comes. Whoa! And it's taken to the exact location where it is needed. Now, that is a cell today. But even the most basic, even the most primitive cell that scientists have ever been able to imagine, that cell still contains information, information in a code. So here's the crucial bit to understand. The code and the means of translating it are both needed from the word go. One of those things is useless without the other. You have to have both, which begs a huge question. Where did the information come from in the first ever living cell? I've listed on the screen some of the newly discovered barriers on the screen. These are, well, suffice to say, we don't have a viable naturalistic explanation of how life started on Earth. In fact, with each passing decade, the problem of getting life from non-life on Earth increases. Okay, we are out of time. <laughs> Let's try and draw some of these threads together. Now, nothing that I've said this morning proves that God exists. But if you were to look for the inference to the best explanation, then whether you look at, firstly, the origin of the universe, or whether you look at the fine-tuning of the universe, or whether you look for the origin of biological information, in all three cases, what seems to be needed is a transcendent, intelligent first cause. And you could call a transcendent, intelligent first cause God. So it seems that science hasn't buried God, no, God's existence actually is a reasonable explanation for the existence of the universe and for the existence of life. Okay, what about Charles Darwin's famous theory of evolution? Well, uh, evolution begins with the entire universe already in existence. So evolution has got nothing to say about how the universe started or even about how life began. So let us just be clear about how limited the scope of evolutionary theory is. Biological evolution doesn't even start until the universe has already been around for 10 billion years. How did the universe get here? Why did it begin to exist? Well, evolution doesn't even address those questions. Evolution begins after you've already got the universe and you've got planet Earth and you've got a single-celled organism living on the surface of our planet in the ideal conditions. So I think it's obvious that evolution could be true and God still exists. It would be a mistake to say, well, because evolution has happened, God doesn't exist. That's the mistake that Richard Dawkins makes. In fact, that is the category mistake that we started with. So I want to look very briefly then at three different Christian responses to evolution <laughs> And as I do, maybe the band could come up and join me at the front. 
Firstly, then, young earth creationism. Now, this is the view that the earth is young. It's only about 20 to 30,000 years old. It was created in six 24-hour days. This view says that actually common descent evolution between species hasn't taken place. If you'd like to find out more about this view, I'd recommend Answers in Genesis. A second alternative position is called Old Earth Creationism. Now, this view, in contrast to the first one, this view accepts the scientific orthodoxy today, which says that the universe is 13.7 billion years old, that the Earth is 4.5 billion years old. However, this view agrees with the first view in saying that evolution between species, common descent, has not taken place. And for this view, I'd recommend Reasons to Believe, or Reasons.org. A third alternative view is theistic evolution. This view differs from both of the first two in that this view says that actually common descent evolution between species has taken place. Now, this view would argue that God has directed or guided this process to a greater or a lesser extent, and for this view you could look at biologos. Now, all three of these views are taken by sincere Christians who want to take the Bible seriously. Obviously, they do interpret the early chapters of the book of Genesis differently. In this church, you will probably find that all three of these views are represented. In fact, you'll probably find there's a number of other views as well. Okay, you might be asking, what's the bottom line? Well, I think the bottom line has got to be that some of the world's leading scientists are Bible-believing Christians. So no one here is being asked to throw their brain out of the window. None of us are being asked to commit intellectual suicide. Evolution used to be the big question. It's no longer the big question because in the last 20 years, we have discovered so much more evidence for fine-tuning in the universe. The big question now has become, why is there a universe with life in it? Why is there a fine-tuned universe? Every other circumstance rules out life. Every other scenario rules out life. Life is the least likely thing we would expect to find. Yet, what do we have? We have a universe that's fine-tuned in such a way as to make advanced organic life possible on the surface of our planet. Why? Why on earth would that be? That is now the big question. Lastly, we might wonder if God has gone to all this trouble to create our finely tuned universe and then to create life, you would almost expect that this God at some point might want to communicate with his creatures. What the Bible is claiming is that that is what was happening through Jesus of Nazareth. And for me, finding out that actually there is a loving God and then getting to know him personally through trusting Jesus Christ, folks, that has been the most thrilling discovery of my life. God bless you. It's been great being with you. Thank you very much.